0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, March uh, the 20th, 2023. Uh, We've done some shows on Africa, Uh, Africa, of course, being the world's second largest and second most populous continent. But we've mostly done shows on Africa, treating the continent as a kind of victim. We did one with the Stanford historian a few months ago, JP Dorton, on the ugly truth about French colonization of central africa he has a new book out in the forest of no joy a, a book about the congo ocean railroad and its building and in a more contemporary sense we've done shows on the aids epidemic in africa the uh, the crisis of refugees and the reappearance of a 21st century slave trade uh in north africa Uh, And, of course, we've done many shows on poverty, education, uh, the need for more resources in Africa. But there's another Africa, an Africa which uh, many of our viewers and listeners might be less familiar with. This is an Africa uh, uh, defined by its great kingdoms. Um, History is all, of course, about perception. Winners choose their histories. Africa has always been so to speak, a loser in terms of colonialism and exploitation. But things are beginning to change. My guest today is John Parker. Uh, He taught for many years at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, and he's joining us from Islington in North London. Uh, John, welcome. You edited this book. Um, Would you agree that history is for winners and losers and one of the reasons to do this book? is to reclaim uh, the strength, the glory of African history.
1: Yes, I would agree with that. Um, It was interesting to listen to the other shows you've had on Africa, and there's a real theme there, poverty, uh, colonial exploitation, uh, the AIDS, uh, HIV AIDS crisis, and these topics have all reinforced this idea that Africa, as you rightly say, is a victim. But that's something of a relatively recent phenomenon. What this book does is go back to the beginning of recorded history in the Nile Valley 5,000 years ago and traces the history of African kingdoms through to the uh, beginning of the period of European colonization at the end of the 19th century. And for much of that time, Africa had a very different history and perceptions both inside and outside the continent Were quite different. Um, The focus is, as you say, on kingdoms, but this was a period where African kingdoms can be seen uh, comparatively to stand up relatively well against kingdoms and empires and other state systems and other parts of the world. So it was really before um, the Atlantic slave trade, racism and European imperialism impacted on the continent in those very negative ways
0: you mentioned this idea of a kingdom john um how did c- can one generalize about the types of kingdoms that existed of course hollywood's been in the business also of reinterpreting and, and re um, reinventing i guess uh, african history the movies black panther and wakanda or ever reinvent a kind of sense of, of what a king and, uh, and, and, and uh, ar- African aristocracy meant. Um, was there something or is there something unique about the idea of an African kingdom or is it equivalent to the kinds of kingdoms that existed in Europe and Asia?
1: That is yes, a very good question and that that's absolutely goes to the heart of, of what the book's about. In many ways, African rulers, whether they were kings or queens, and there is a gender perspective here because most rulers were men, but some very important ones were women, um, can be seen to be, African kingdoms can be seen in many ways to be quite similar to kingdoms in other parts of the world, um, and from Asia, Europe, the Americas, and, and elsewhere. Um, And so I think the comparative perspective here is very important. We don't want to sort of exoticize and essentialize Africa and think of it as this strange, peculiar, other sort of place where politics and power and society function differently. But on the other hand, there are very particular ways in which power functioned historically in Africa that can be seen to be distinctive of the continent, and particularly different from received ideas of how kingship functioned in Europe, for example. And one of those ways is uh, there's a debate within um, scholarly circles that we try to present in the book to a a general audience in an accessible way about the nature of African power. Uh, Was power in Africa essentially a, a thing of consensus and And sharing, and uh, kings as figures that that looked after their subjects and their peoples, or was power seen to can power seem to be coercive, exploitative, and um, and a problem for the people who who kings tried to assert their power over. So in some and so that has particular historical. Uh, that takes particular historical shape in different parts of the continent at different times. So what the book tries to do is try to get away from sort of centralized idea of as Africa is this, Africa does that, to look at the historical nuances and how they took place in different parts of the continent over a, a long time period.
0: John, as I suggested at the beginning of the show, Africa is a huge continent, 30 million kilometers um, covering twenty percent of the Earth's land area, obviously in a pre-industrial world, most, most even the most intrepid travellers would have been unfamiliar with it as a continent. Ah, uh, when one thinks for for myself as a as a very much a non-Africanist, very much of a generalist, one thinks of Africa being divided certainly into at least two worlds: uh, the world above the Sahara, the Africa above the Sahara, and the Africa below the Sahara. Is that accurate? Uh, uh, can one talk about a series of continents or spheres within Africa that have always existed historically?
1: Yes. Uh, it's both correct and, in a way, not correct. I mean, continents are imagined things. They have been socially constructed and historically constructed over time by people, and the the basic distinction between Africa as divided by the Sahara Desert, north and south, is a very important one. But in many ways, African civilization, African history transcended the Sahara, and in recent decades, historians are very interested in tracing lines of continuity and connectivity across the Sahara. That uh, that brought both uh, north and south, um, the regions north and south of the desert uh, together in all sorts of interesting ways. Having said that, Africa is not a country. Africa, of course, is a huge continent with over fifty uh, contemporary nation states, including offshore islands, and the different parts of the continent's history unfolded in profoundly uh, different ways. Um, and the book explores that through a series of nine case studies looking at different regions, uh, so looking at the tension between uh, uh, between differences and, and similarities uh, between those regions. And in addition, uh, there's another part of African history which, of course, uh, extends far beyond the continent, which is the history of... Uh, African people and the descendants of African people who were removed often forcibly from the continent through the various slave trades, in particular the transatlantic slave trade and the creation of the black diaspora in the Atlantic world in North and South America. And many historians are increasingly arguing, and I'm one of them, that African history needs to encompass the histories of people who were removed from the continent as well. And so those sort of what could be called sort of circumatlantic connections. In the
0: same way as you think that the the history of Europe should incorporate the history of Latin America and North America?
1: Indeed. And of course, the Americas, uh, including the Caribbean, were were zones where different world cultures came together in, in very profound ways and created something very new. And I think in in the contemporary world, with an awareness that Black history, Black culture um, uh, uh, should be taken very seriously historically, then the coming together of those cultures in the Americas, I think, is a crucial part of the story. And one of the things that some of the chapters do is look at the extension of ideas of African kingship, uh, for example, from the Kingdom of Congo in Central Africa, from the Yoruba kingdoms of West Africa, across the Atlantic, into the new world.
0: Uh, before we get, to, I, w- I wanna to get to some of these concrete examples in the book, but I, I can't resist, John. I'm sure you're sick of hearing these questions on Black Panther and Wakanda forever. I, I'm, I'm assuming you've seen the films or you, you've at least read about them. Are yeah. they in any way accurate? What do those films tell you? You must've got a bit of a chuckle when you went to see them
1: well the 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 interaction between the sphere of popular culture and, and and history I think is is a is a very interesting one because quite simply it's a way that many people will have confronted and engaged with ideas of black African power in the past slash in the future in an, in, in an imaginary world, and in fact there's very many aspects of African uh, kingship, African power, African history—that have been very cleverly incorporated into the Black Panther films, but also into into another recent film, um, the uh, the Woman King, which says. Very yeah, common, I saw that one as well. That was yeah, good. about the way about the the much more sort of nuanced way that gender worked in in African power. And as I said before, Africa has a num has had a number of historically very important female rulers and so that's something of 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 great interest too so yeah i mean these films are great entertainment but they're also extremely interesting in terms of representation and the sort of positionality of the black past
0: yeah if i taught african history if i as an introduction i would get my students to write a comparative Essay on treatment of Africa in the in the movie Zulu, Zulu, the 1964 epic British war film. I guess it's epic in its own way. And then uh, the Black Panther and Wakanda films—they treat Africa and Africans dramatically different. But they're both, I guess, fictionalized. Both reflect their broader culture rather than Africa itself. Your book. Let, let's talk more concretely about Africa um, and the book, John. You you also wrote. Uh, a book, uh, African History, a very short introduction. This is a slightly longer introduction. You begin with ancient Egypt and um, the Nubia people. Um, When one thinks of the Egyptians, of course, one doesn't always think of them as African. Was there something quintessentially African about the ancient Egyptians? We've done a number of shows on the pharaohs and the pyramids and all that sort of thing.
1: Um. Well, the last time I looked, Africa, uh, Egypt was on the map of Africa. So yeah, yeah me Africa. too. I, I take e- your Egypt point. is a is a, a, a an African civilization, but um, but it, of course, it was more than that. Egypt has also been perceived as a Mediterranean civilization, and as you suggest, as part part of the the ancient um, Near and Middle East as well. So Egypt is absolutely crucial in our understandings of the ancient past and, and its positionality has, has been contested and is extremely important. What this chapter does by David wengro one of the leading uh, archeologists of early Egyptian history is to make a very interesting argument, which is that there's been too much focus on Egypt uh, as the first, um, area of state building in Africa to the neglect of looking at the longer Nile Valley and a dialogue between Egypt on the one hand and Nubia uh, to the south and and Wengro makes I think a very persuasive argument in his first, in the first opening chapter of the book that um, that Nile Valley civilization did not just emerge uh, in Upper in, in Egypt but also in uh, what is now uh, the area to the south and the present day Republic of Sudan. And so what that first chapter does, I hope, in the book is to set the kind of tone which is not just to sort of regurgitate uh, received wisdoms, but to present uh, in an accessible way some really sort of cutting edge ideas about how academics now are, th- are thinking and rethinking uh, the African past
0: uh john in our in in the in 2023 where we seem preoccupied i in my view rather too preoccupied with the issue of skin color of race uh people think of africa of course as a a continent mostly inhabited by people of black skin um what's your interpretation of the history of race in, in in african history particularly in terms of the great kingdoms of africa when one thinks of egypt for example um one doesn't necessarily think of black africa was and is race the defining or one of the defining qualities which shaped power and identity in the kingdoms that you study
1: no i i don't see race working in that way and i think very few academics today would um Again, like continents, race is widely recognized as a social construct, like gender is a social construct. It's not a biological given. It's in the eye of the beholder. It's been constructed uh, over time by different people in different ways. And for much of their history, people who lived on the continent of Africa would not have thought in any way about the notion of how we today would sort of think about race. Uh, African people in all parts of the continent have many different skin colors, and they've all fashioned history in a variety of ways, entirely independent of what they look like. But European ideas of race have impacted upon African history in profound ways, particularly... From the early modern period and the advent of European, um, the European slave trade, which was very much entangled with the much more harder notion of race, which of course justified the enslavement and the uh, transport, forced transportation of people from Africa. So it's not to deny that race is important, it's been very important historically, but it is to say that that a, a notion of race has not really in any serious way shaped the way kings, kingship, and kingdoms have functioned in the continent. One can portray them as, as, as black kings, as, as Black Panther and, and these other um, films do, but there's much more interesting things going on historically than, 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 the, than the socially constructed idea of, of racial hierarchy.
0: What about the role of religion in these kingdoms that you cover in the book? Uh, One of the chapters is on the House of uh, Solomon, an Ethiopian Orthodox Christian kingdom. Uh, I think another on the the so-called Sokoto Caliphate uh, in Sudan, an Islamic uh, kingdom. I presume also that there were many pre-monotheistic which define these kingdoms. Are there generalizations, John, one can make about the relationship between religious and political power in the establishment of these kingdoms?
1: There are, and this is an, an absolutely fundamental theme of the book. Um, my aim was not just to create a book written by nine um, leading historians that, sort of, that just sort of set out, as I said, Kind of received notions, the usual sort of narrative of, of, of these great kingdoms. What I was looking for was to sort of tease out ideas about the, the the real essential nature of power and how kingship unfolded in different ways in different parts of the continent. And one central theme that emerges from the nine essays is exactly as you say, the entanglement of power and the sacred realm, both in terms of uh, indigenous African belief and the later um, uh, coming of first Christianity and then Islam into the continent. And all three religious spheres have shaped power and uh, and kingship in absolutely fundamental ways. And so the examples that you've given are, are very important. The, the, the importance of Christian kingship in Ethiopia over the best part of 2,000 years, the importance of Christian kingship in the kingdom of Congo from the late um, 15th century, but also in other profound ways, the importance of indigenous forms of African belief and the, way that the, the importance of the role of kings as sacred rulers.
0: Yeah, it occurs to me in a colonial sense that one of the discussions that never happened around the Balfour Declaration, when there was a huge debate about where the Jewish people should have a homeland, there was some talk of it going to to Uganda. It would have been surreal, to say the least, had there been a a European-imposed Jewish state in the middle of Africa, although I guess there was one in in, in the Middle East. Uh, Are all the religions... Uh, I mean, was was there a a long history of religious conflict, especially wars between Muslims and Christians? I assume that the Reformation never played much of a role. The Christian Reformation played much of a role in Africa in terms of warfare and conflict and indeed innovation as it did in Europe.
1: Um, Not so much in the period the book covers, which is essentially that before the coming of European colonial rule. But by the um, by the 19th and into the 20th century, the Reformation was important because, of course, with the creation of um, Protestantism, you had the formation of many Protestant um, missionary organizations, which had a very profound impact in many parts of the continent. Um, and so and one of the ways that that unfolded was that uh, Christ, one of the things that Christian uh, missionary organizations brought was of course literacy. And for those many parts of the continent that had been non-literate civilizations and in which uh, information and history uh, was passed down orally, the coming of writing was very important because that was where it was in the 19th century that many of these ancient oral traditions were first written down, often by African, intellectuals and many of whom were churchmen and women themselves and so um so christianity was important in that way but of course the history of christianity as we said extends back uh to the dawn of of the religion itself whether the the first people to convert to christianity beyond its original um uh, emergence in in israel palestine were of course egyptians uh, and, and Christianity was adopted in Ethiopia as early as the opening uh, centuries of the first uh, millennium and had a profound impact also in parts of West Africa, particularly Congo, as I've mentioned, from the early modern period in the, in the 15th century. So Christian kingship was a thing, but so too, as you say, was uh, were Islamic forms of power. And so all existed in uh in different parts of the continent uh in at different times and that's another part of the story that we tell
0: we did a show uh last month with a nigerian very very talented nigerian writer emmanuel iduma it's a memoir of his upbringing in nigeria and it's a book about the nigerian civil war it's really a book about his family the silence of the Nigerian civil war which was, of course was a tribal civil war we take it for granted maybe this is a feature or a legacy of colonialism that africa in political and cultural terms can be defined by tribes i didn't even know what a tribe means what's your take on that uh, john um in, in not just uh, your 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 book about african kingdoms uh, but uh, your short history of Africa. Do we overdo the, tr- the tribal element? Should we even be using this word? And and has what is the relationship between tribes and great kingdoms of Africa? Have all these kingdoms been built around some sort of tribal identity, tribal kings?
1: Yeah, very good question. The answer is we need to be extremely careful with the use of the word tribe it should be put in inverted commas it's very much a european colonial construction as richard rathbone and i write about in our very short introduction to african history um it's it's generally a word of empire it's generally a pejorative term it was used to refer back in the classical world of Of the Eastern of the Mediterranean to peoples who were not sophisticated enough to have kingdoms and, st- and organized states. They didn't live in those entities. They lived in disorganized and unruly so-called tribes. It's the way the Greeks talked about the so-called barbarians, a Greek originally a Greek word uh, at the edges. It's the way the Romans talked about the tribes of North Africa. And more recently, it became a word of European empire in the in the 19th and 20th century. Africa was seen quite incorrectly to be a continent of tribes, discrete, distinct uh, peoples who had their own uh, governance, their own uh, customs, their own laws that were very different as you moved across this kind of tribal. Um, uh, landscape and nothing could have been further from the truth africans didn't live in tribes africans like people in many parts of the world all parts of the world had a variety of different identities and what we think of as tribe was often not did not feature at all Having said that, tribe, the notion of tribe or, or ethnic group as as would be the more sort of correct and neutral and less value-laden way of talking about entities that, that today um, did become a very important way that Europeans perceived Africa in, in the colonial period, and they, they thought they were ruling these tribes, whereas often what they were doing was creating the, the, so, these so-called tribes by thinking that that's how African people lived.
0: But well, were there cultural generalizations one could make about some of, the, some of the kingdoms you talk about? You have a chapter on the Sudanic Empire of Western Africa. We've already mentioned the Kingdom of Congo. Uh, you have a chapter on uh, the, the Bantu Kingdom of Buganda. Uh, another one on the Kingdom of Benin. Uh, were these all places where people would have shared a culture, spoken the same language, thought of themselves in the same political, cultural, communal terms?
1: In some cases, yes, but in others, no. The Sudanic states, that the, the famous succession of, of, of Ghana, then Mali, and then Songhai, these great trading states that straddled the West African savannah that are written about, very interestingly, by Romana Adrissa in in one of the chapters of the book, were more like empires, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-language empires that incorporated vast numbers of very different people. Other kingdoms were much more uh, uh, um, ethnically coherent, where, yes, there would have been uh, a, a main language of uh, and, and a main sort of set of cultural notions that 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 shaped power. So I think the, the the point to make is is that African kingdoms deserve the sort of serious, nuanced study that kingdoms in other parts of the world have had. I mean, we wouldn't talk about European empires and states in such sort of simplistic ways simply because so much more is known about them. So what the book tries to do is is make a strong case that these African uh state structures uh are, are as complex and as interesting and as nuanced as those in other parts of the world too so you know it's it's dangerous to to generalize because things were different in different parts of the continent and things changed over time and that of course is the essence of of history
0: the more you know as a historian the less we know um yeah that's Ron, right. about, <laughs> uh, I, I mentioned that there's. 64 Zulu film. I remember seeing it as a boy in, in London. And of course, the memories of that is, is it's a movie about war. Uh, some people might suggest that, well, it was giving Africans a degree of dignity because they fought successfully against the British colonizer. Others might suggest that it fetishized violence. When I, I know you have a chapter on the Zulu kingdom. I'm sure your answer is going to be similar to all these questions uh, which suggest that Africa was no different from anywhere else is equally complex but what about the role of violence that the colonial construction of Africa I think represented it as a continent of extreme violence which justified colonialism in itself was Africa in your view in terms particularly of these kingdoms was it more or less violent than asia or kingdoms in asia or or europe or is it again no generalizations we can really make
1: that's a very good question because violence the, the the role of violence in state building has of course been common throughout history in all parts of the world coercion military power uh state violence has been a crucial aspect of how kings secured power And Africa is no exception. I don't think Africa was any more or less violent than than any other part of the world, although it may in many aspects have been less so. One of the arguments that a number of our contributors in the book make is that African kingdoms at different times had a real genius for a much more consensual form of power that did not necessarily involve state violence. Um, and the, the, there's considerable evidence to, to support that at, at different times in different parts of the continent. However, from the in the early modern period, from about, say, 1600 onwards, we do have there's clear indications that a new kind of state was emerging in Africa that was much more based on coercion and military power. We see the rise of powerful militarized and expansive kingdoms like Ashanti in West Africa, neighboring Dahomey in West Africa, Segu in the West African savannah, uh, Uganda, most of which we we, we talk about in our case studies in the book. And in some ways that violence can be linked to the violence uh, created by the Uh, atlantic slave trade which brought in guns which brought in the imperative uh, to capture uh, people to sell them and uh, of course the more guns and the more people that the the more people could be captured the more power could be accumulated by a new kind of of ruler so older ideas of the ruler as a bringer of consensus and uh, a bringer of law and a a guarantor of fertility and health and well-being was overlaid with new kinds of power and um so there's a tension between those two aspects of power and that's it's a key theme of the book there's so-called instrumental power which basically means the powers of coercion of, of 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 state violence or at least the threat of state violence uh, sovereignty based on on um, the ability of sovereigns to do what they want to do to the people who they wanted to rule, against an idea that scholars call creative power, much more to do with the sacred realm and much more to do with the king or the queen, as I've said before, as, as a preserver, as a guarantor of, of security and well-being. And so the tension between those those, um, those two kinds of, of power um, is very important.
0: John, you talk with a great deal of passion about Africa. You clearly invested massively. You've dedicated your career to it. You were born in New Zealand. How, how did you get involved with Africa? Did you visit it? Did you just find it historically fascinating? Why, why have you dedicated your life to the study of Africa?
1: Yes, yeah, so I initially I travelled extensively in Africa in, in my early 20s uh, because I found it an absolutely fascinating region and I went back a number of times. And um, I started univ- my university career quite late. I was almost 30. And so I was sort of 10 years older than my fellow undergraduates. And so when I went to university after living in different parts of the world and, and, and travelling in different parts of the world, I wanted to uh, study African history so I went to SOas um, uh, back in 1988 as an undergraduate and I went on um, to do a PhD in African history uh, and I chose to focus on on Ghana all of my um, all of my research work has focused on, uh the history of of, of ghana so the, sudanic,
0: uh, the sudanic sudanic empires are particularly interesting for you
1: no, no sorry not not ancient ghana but the modern right. nation of ghana so the the, the 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 nation that now encompasses the the ashanti empire one of the case studies one of the chapters i write in the book and so the the three monograph uh, monographs I've written have all been about the history different aspects of the history of, of Ghana my teaching career of course is like most academics has gone way beyond that and is focused on on the continent as a whole and so the this book the uh, very short introduction and another book I edited uh, with a SOAS colleague on the modern history of Africa have have, have looked at the continent as a whole Uh, and beyond and so like many academics i kind of came to you know I, i got drawn into my specialist field in a sort of accidental kind of way i had a very inspirational teacher richard rathbone who i ended up writing the very short introduction to african history with and one invests so much time and effort in terms of sort of cultural and linguistic knowledge and 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 um and, you know, specialist ideas that, you know, that, that academics tend to sort of focus on one particular uh, part mm. of the continent that's quite common. And so the modern Republic of Ghana is is, is what I write on.
0: Let's end, John, with a, a what if. you, As you said, you studied the modern kingdom of uh, the Asante Empire between 1700 and 1901, a, a, a great empire. Uh, The idea, I think, implied in Black Panther and Wakanda is that Africa had the resources for its own enlightenment, its own European so-called Western revolution. It's been an age-old debate amongst historians about why Europe invented modernity. Why not China? Why not Japan? Why not the Middle East? Why not Africa, John? In another version of history with some odd twists and turns, could could we have had the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, the revolution of democracy and representation, could it have happened in Africa?
1: That's a fascinating and very challenging question to answer. And, of course, historians are very reluctant to answer. In, in 30 seconds, it is, but no, it's a I, good one. And what I would say is that up until about the middle of the second millennium, I'd say that that culture, civilization, state systems in Europe, uh, Africa, and Asia, as they were in the Americas before the Iberian conquests, um, can be seen to be much have many similarities. The sort of the standard of living for your average um, uh, peasant farmer would have been very similar in West Africa, for example, to to medieval Europe or China, India, elsewhere from the middle of the second millennium something very profound happened and as we sort of discussed before that was a coming together of racism of the transatlantic slave trade which segued on into the era of european imperialism and colonization and expropriation and all of those things had a very severe impact on on much of the continent, from which really it's only beginning to emerge in the so-called post-colonial period of the last fifty or sixty years or so. And as the famous architect uh, Sir David Adjaye, who writes in the foreword to the book, Africa is really looking at a moment of of renaissance right now in terms of culture in terms of Yeah, his his, his foreword
0: is entitled Reclaiming Ancestral Narratives. Yeah, is. and
1: I think the argument here is that we you know that there really is an imperative to understand the complexities of the past, not to essentialize the African past to for the continent to move forward and you know I only hope that that this book can make a modest contribution to to that project.